0: Hey y'all, welcome to the Coochie Business Podcast where we talk about coochies in general and black coochies in particular. I'm your host, Dr. Abigail, a queer Nigerian immigrant working on my fifth degree focused on the natural black coochie. As your coochie curator, I'm here to bring you stories and conversations that'll make you laugh, sometimes cry, but I'll always give you something to think about. Today's episode features the first guest interview on the Coochie Business Podcast, the incredible, legendary, also known as the godmother of reproductive justice, Loretta J. Ross. (laughs) Y'all not ready. Shit, I wasn't ready. I was nervous, trembling, and she was just so smooth, complimenting my fumbling ass. But let me tell you a little bit about Miss Loretta Ross. She's a visiting professor at Smith College in the program for the study of women and gender. She was an organizer through groups such as the National Organization for Women, NOW, the National Black Women's Health Project, the Center for Democratic Renewal, which was the national anti clan network, the National Center for Human Rights Education, and SisterSong, Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective she retired from organizing back in 2012 so that she could teach about activism. She's co-authored a number of books. I'm going to talk about Reproductive Justice, An Introduction, and Radical Reproductive Justice, Foundations, Theories, Practice, and Critique. And she's working on a current book, Calling In, The Calling Out Culture. It's coming out in 2021. It's such an honor to have her on this show today. It's an honor for you all to learn from Miss Loretta Ross today. Y'all gonna learn some things. And this first interview is an important framing of what this podcast is all about, the reproductive justice framework. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into this interview. So when I heard you earlier this week talk, you uh, mentioned a story about the importance of having fun while doing reproductive justice work and social justice work. You talked about um, fighting Nazis and something there. Can you just start off, start us off with that story and why it's important to have fun doing this work?
1: In the 1990s, I had a job at the National Anti-Klan Network, which had been renamed the Center for Democratic Renewal. And if you're in Atlanta, in the birthplace of the civil rights movement, you tend to take your work responsibilities in the civil rights movement very seriously. So I was working 16-hour days and really just had lost the joy of life. And one of my mentors, Leonard Zeskin, noticed this about me. And he told me, Loretta, lighten up. And he said, fighting Nazis should be fun. It's being a Nazi that sucks. <laughs> and that really helped me regain my perspective mm-hmm. that I was supposed to have joy in doing this work. Tony Cade wrote long time ago that we need to make the revolution irresistible. And that's been my mantra ever since, that if you're not having fun doing this work, you're doing it wrong.
0: I mm, love it. Thank you. So um, one of the reasons, the reason um, I'm so excited to have you be the first interview on this podcast is about, is because the framing of this entire enterprise and my life's work is reproductive justice. And I didn't know the name. I didn't know that it had a name until somewhere well into my degrees and you know work and such, right? That, that this framework existed. And then you as being part of um, the development of the frame and part of this work for a long time. So we're gonna unpack that in this episode in this um, interview with you. But to start, I'd like for you to please explain what is reproductive justice as opposed to reproductive oppression. And why is it so important? So can you talk about the political and historical reason for why that frame was created back, that term was created back in 1994?
1: Well, Reproductive Justice, or RJ as we describe it, came about in 1994 when a group of 12 Black women were part of 200 women who attended this Illinois conference on pro-choice politics. And we heard a representative from the Clinton administration speak to this conference trying to urge us to support the Clinton administration attempt to reform health care. And the Clinton administration had decided that the best way to lessen Republican opposition to health care reform was to omit anything dealing with reproductive health care, particularly abortion. And so we patiently heard this explanation from the Clinton administration, and it didn't make sense to us. So later that night in our hotel rooms, I think it was Abel Mabel Thomas, who was a a Georgia representative at the time, called us together in her hotel room, and she said, this doesn't make sense. What are we going to do about it? And the 12 women who assembled were all black women. We all worked at different organizations. Some of us worked within the pro-choice movement at Planned Parenthood or NARAL. Some worked within Black women's organizations like the National Black Women's Health Project, which is now called the Black Women's Health Imperative. Myself, I was still working at the Center for Democratic Renewal, the National anti Plan Network. But we started to really analyze the presentation we'd heard from the Clinton administration, and the first thing we landed on is why would they come to a feminist conference to ask feminists to support such a male-centric health care plan? Because if you omit reproductive health care from health care reform, you strip away the main driver of women to medical care, to the doctor. It's our plumbing that pushes us into these medical settings more so than anything else. And so as we started analyzing our discomfort, we also noticed that abortion was always separated from all the social justice issues that really determine whether or not someone turns an unplanned pregnancy into a wanted child. Because if the person doesn't have adequate health care or secure housing or ability to go back to work or maintain their education or not experience violence from their partner, then you really don't understand all the really complex thinking that goes into reproductive healthcare decisions. And so isolating abortion from all those social justice issues never made sense because if the person has good answers to those complex questions, then they're going to turn an unplanned pregnancy into a child. But if they have bad answers to those social justice questions, then they may even turn a planned pregnancy into an abortion. And so isolating abortion didn't work for us as black women. And it really only focused on one part of the continuum for the reproductive health care women need. Well, woman care, cervical cancer screening, breast cancer screening, uh, STD prevention, all those other things, as well as pregnancy prevention, all of those other things were omitted from this proposed health care plan. And so we decided to splice together the concept of reproductive rights and social justice, and that's how we coined the term reproductive justice. And because we were coming from different organizations from whom we had not gotten permission to use their names, we called ourselves women of African descent for reproductive justice and we used that phrase African descent because we recognized that not everybody was an African American but they that every black person at least in this conversation was descended from Africa and then we decided to place a full page ad in the Washington Post on August 16, 1994 offering our critique of the healthcare reform plan, and then and then we entitled ourselves with that ad in the post, "Black Women for Healthcare Reform," and so that's where reproductive justice originated. We then populated it with articulating its three main principles, which is the right to have a child, the human right not to have a child, and the human right to raise your children in safe and healthy environments. And about a decade after that, we added a fourth tenet, which is the human right to personal bodily autonomy and gender identity and sexual pleasure. Undergirding these declarations of rights is the human rights framework, which we also use because we feel that if a person's human rights are not attended to, then they'll be thwarted in their efforts to achieve reproductive, reproductive justice. And reproductive oppression is simply denying people their human rights to decide if and when they'll have a child and the conditions under which they give birth and whether or not they'll be able to parent their children in safe and healthy environments. And it takes place in many forms, whether it's through sterilization abuse like just got exposed in the ICE detention facilities by Don Wooden, who was a brave nurse who became a whistleblower, exposing the violations by the U.S. government of people in immigration detention facilities, or the forced removal of children from their parents, and the 666 children that the United States government has removed from their parents, and now they can't find the parents for basically kidnapping the children and then creating artificially them in an orphan status. But also reproductive oppression can be described as housing insecurity, food insecurity, gun violence, the school-to-prison pipeline, uh, the murder of our children by law enforcement and racist vigilantes. We also critique things like unfair tax policies and credit policies and all kinds of issues, environmental degradation. So as you can tell, reproductive justice is a very expansive and capacious framework because it includes all fields of human endeavor that have an impact on whether someone can raise a child, have a child, or choose not to have a child and have respect for their reproductive decision-making, their bodily autonomy, autonomy and their human right to decide their identities.
0: I really, again, back to why I'm so excited to have you on this podcast to explain this framework and why coochie business is everybody's business. (laughs) And if we're going to liberate some coochies, we all need to understand how coochie business then becomes your business. So one of the things that you just mentioned, and I would like for you to unpack a bit is this human rights framework because some people are going to be like well how does housing rights relate to reproductive justice so can you explain why human rights framework and what why focus on that and what it is briefly because I know there are different parts and we'll link to the declaration in the show notes if people want to know more Well,
1: most people don't understand the fullness of the human rights framework because they think of it as just a political prisoner in torture in another country. They don't really understand that there's eight categories of human rights protection to which we're all entitled. We have civil rights, the right of equality. We have political rights like freedom of speech and freedom of religion or freedom from religion. We also have economic human rights the right to have an economy, meet our needs. We have social human rights, which are your human needs, turned into human rights, like your right to health care, education, social security, unemployment, welfare. Uh, All of those human needs are actually human rights. They're not just aspirations. Mm -hmm. Then there are cultural human rights, the right to practice the culture or the religion of your choice, the right to speak the language of your choice, and have your needs met in that language. Environmental human rights is the sixth category, the right to a clean environment and the right not to have your environment poisoned by corporations or the military, things like clean uh, water, potable water, access to food that is not genetically modified, those kinds of things. The seventh category is called developmental human rights, and these are the rights that the Global South demand to have control over developing their own natural resources and not have Western-based multinational corporations come in and steal their gold, their diamonds, their oil, whatever. The eighth category is sexual human rights, and these are the rights developed by the women's movement, demanded by the women's movement, the right to determine if and when You'll become a sexual being, the right to sexual pleasure, the right to decide if and when you're going to have children and under what conditions, the right to marry or not to marry. And so those are the original eight categories of human rights. And I should add that there's an emerging ninth category, which I think should be called digital human rights, because Mm -hmm. we're quickly recognizing that if we're not digitally connected, that we won't have adequate access to health care, or to education, or to banking, or a number of other human needs that we have that are connected to whether or not we have internet access. And so people who don't know the human rights framework really don't know what to expect of that framework and how comprehensive it can be used to ensure that we live a life of human dignity and have both affirmative and negative government obligations. The negative government obligation is the government shouldn't tell us what to do, shouldn't tell us what religion we should have or what we should think or believe. Those are the negative rights. But the positive rights is that for me to enjoy health care as a human rights, then the government has to establish a health care system. Or if I want an education as a human right, then it has to provide an educational system and go on, go on. And so we in reproductive justice, we use the fullness of the human rights framework so people not just understanding that it's about simple equality, it's about the enabling and conditions so that you can actually exercise your rights and achieve reproductive justice.
0: Absolutely, and I love that emerging ninth category, digital. Um, I'm, 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 I'm working on my fifth degree um, in 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 getting black coochies free, if you will, um, and and I'm taking a health communications class. I've taken it twice now, once from public health, and now from a communications piece. And this health literacy, and for sure, but digital literacy is a big part of that. And if we're connecting that to Reproductive rights. If you can't get access to the information, well, what does that mean? And and I really appreciate the RJ framework in terms of focusing on access. Thanks for unpacking that. I want to shift because now you know people need to know what and why this framework um, is so important. But let's talk about you. You know, um, I'm a firm believer that the personal is political, right? And 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 we make decisions, and I. I've heard this in, in, in the way that you've spoken in, in conferences. I've read it in your work. Um, can you, what, what's your personal story and why is it political for you? What brought you to this RJ work?
1: Not having control over my body is what brought me to the RJ movement and to the RJ work. Uh, when I was 11 years old, I was kidnapped and raped. And that's how I lost my virginity. And I didn't have the words to describe what had happened to me. And I was so afraid of even telling my mother what had happened to me for fear that I'd get in trouble.
0: I'm so sorry.
1: That silence actually made me more vulnerable because three years later, my mother left me with an older married cousin to babysit me. And he decided it would be a better idea to have sex with me. And he bought all all this alcohol and got me drunk and had sex with me at 14 when he was 27. And because this was in the 1960s, I didn't have any access to birth control and I didn't even have the knowledge to use it if I had access to it. So I became pregnant and at the time my only option was to give my son up for adoption. But after he was born and the nurses put him into my arms, I couldn't give him up because I kept saying, he's got my face, he's got my face, and I couldn't go through with the adoption. So I ended up co-parenting for the next four decades with my rapist until my rapist died. And so then a couple of years later, I went off to college because I graduated high school at 16, went to Howard University. And my mother refused me permission to obtain birth control because I was underage and I still needed her parental consent. And quite naturally, first year in college, first time liberated from the family, I found a boyfriend who was in his first year of law school. And after a few sexual encounters, I got pregnant again. Luckily for me, Washington, D.C. had legalized abortion three years before the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision. So I had no legal obstacles towards obtaining an abortion. And my law school boyfriend was more than willing to pay for it. Mm. So I didn't have any financial obstacles. So my obstacle was familial. My mother still wouldn't sign a permission slip. Well, of course, if she wouldn't want me to use birth control because she didn't want me to have sex, then she also didn't want me to have an abortion. And she thought that I should just drop out of college and come back home and wow. parent the child that I'd already had that she was taking care of and with the new child that was coming along. Well, fortunately for me, my older sister, Carol, who's nine years older than me, forged my mother's signature to the prevention slip. And so I was able to have a perfectly legal abortion in Washington, D.C. Then, seeking to prevent future unplanned pregnancies, I went to Howard University's Health Center and accepted an IUD, which is a intrauterine device. Unfortunately, the IUD they implanted was the Dalcon Shield. And so, a few years after having the Dalcon Shield implanted, At age 23, my fallopian tubes erupted, and so a doctor had to do a full total hysterectomy on me to save my life because I had acute PID and lapsed into a coma. And so I looked up, and my entire reproductive career was over. It was only like seven to nine years. I'd had a baby. I'd had an abortion. Now I had a sterilization. So all of that led me to the reproductive rights, health and justice movement because I was angry
0: I mean, at what I mean. happened
1: to me as you can imagine yes. and the doctor who did my hysterectomy was self-congratulating himself, he said well it shouldn't matter to you because you've already got a baby so now you can live the rest of your life without worrying about getting pregnant and I sued him hmm. and bought my first house with the proceeds
0: <laughs> Wow, not piss me off. Leave it to you to still make someone laugh after all of that. Wow, yeah, personal is political for you.
1: Absolutely, I didn't come into the movement because I read about feminist theory or any of those things. It was my lived experiences. As a matter of fact, I had no intention of becoming a social justice activist because I was majoring in chemistry and physics.
0: I was gonna ask you about that.
1: End up. In a laboratory somewhere, conducting research on the porphyrin molecule. I had no idea that my plumbing would keep getting my attention and demanding that I didn't have control over my coochie. And this is where feminism ended up being my landing spot for making sense of my life.
0: Tell me, that's, my goodness, first of all, I'm so sorry that happened to you. I know that you, 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 you clearly in the power in, in in the story of it, that you've gone through phases of your process with it and it still lands and it still beckons acknowledgement. That's jacked up. <laughs> I have a potty mouth and people going to find out real soon, so, but I'm just going to ease people into it a little bit. But that, no, fuck it. That's fucked up.
1: Absolutely, it is. But you know what's even more distressing? That is still messed up. Yeah. That young women who are also 14 years old with yeah. an unplanned pregnancy have a tougher time controlling their coochie and making their decisions whether or not they're ready to become a mother at 14 than I had. That there have been so many more restrictions and impediments to obtaining abortions, and other reproductive health care than even existed 50 years ago. And that's what keeps me fighting because I don't think any other young Black girl should go through what I went through. And I thought that we'd be over this fight by now, but the fact that the people who are trying to impose their domination on women's bodies haven't given up is why we can't give up.
0: I, I might have to be doing this for 40 more years like you to get to have the calmness... Of spirit to talk about it, you know, Um, because it, it is that 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 coochie business, knowing that this happens still 14, younger than 14. I mean, stories, you know, and that's that's what fuels and is fueling this platform as well to talk about it, to break those silences, those coochie silences and put it out there for the liberation of Coochies because this same thing keeps happening and to the most marginalized of all. And before we kind of go in there, I, I'm curious because you you also, in making this personal political, you talked about your academic roots in the STEM field. And I'm just curious before I lose this thread, what do you see the relationship of science and technology, especially with what you mentioned about that digital emerging digital human rights field and connect that to I don't know what the emerging term would be but for people who are imagining what RJ looks and will look like in the future because of what we see on the horizons now so like the use and misuse of science and yeah kind of bridging that feminist and chemist soul that you've got (laughs) can you talk about that with your personal political RJ Well, I've
1: coined this term recently, about three years ago, called reproductive futurism. And Mm -hmm. I'm probably not the first person to originate that term. But specifically, I'm monitoring how all of our scientific and technological developments may allow the people who want to dominate the planet to upgrade their forms of domination. And I'm talking about the granular intrusion into our lives, For example, with the social media platforms like Google and Facebook, how facial recognition technology is misused, how everything is said online is swept up by the national security apparatus here in the United States, and how reproductive technology is being abused basically to create this myth of designer babies that you can pre-gene select which babies are born how women's bodies are being abused as surrogates for people who choose, who want to become parents but choose to use surrogates if they have choices and the money to do so, but how also our technology is being used to make people reproductively disappear, how people are patenting people's genes right now and basically redefining what is a human being And who owns humanity? All of these are discussions that we need to have in a reproductive futurist context, and in particular in the United States because the demographics are so rapidly changing where white people will no longer be a majority in this country in 30 short years. I believe a lot of this political anxiety that they're expressing about holding on to power and corrupting the democratic process in and, and, and their efforts to do so is tied to their fears of becoming extinct as a white race. Now, it's not a reality that's going to happen, but white extinction, extinction anxiety is something that they talk about a lot. And they're quite open in their white supremacist ideology, at least those white people who are white supremacists. Of course, not all white people are white supremacists. And so they are willing to abuse all forms of technology as a way for them to maintain power. And so while we're looking over our shoulders trying to protect the right to abortion and birth control, they're talking about the right to modify and reclassify humanity as a whole. And so we need to have our eyes focused on the future as well as the past.
0: Mm, Exactly. Thank you so much um, for speaking to that with the future, because this is real. (laughs) This is very real. um, And our lives are on the line. Our bodies are on the line in so many ways. There's this necropolitics conversation and whose bodies are disposable, whose bodies are valuable, what money factors in. There's a lot to think about here as we talk about reproductive justice framework and what it means to each of us as individuals.
1: I like the the emergence of new African philosophers that are talking a lot about necropolitics and the disposability, not only of bodies, but of whole countries, where they become just places for resources to be extracted. As a matter of fact, some of us are dystopic enough to believe that most of the underdeveloped world is not ever meant to be developed because a depopulated country can't protect their own natural resources. So we're even raising into into conversations the conflicts between the global south and the global north and why they seem to be so intractable. But when you use a reproductive justice analysis, you recognize that these countries have their development intentionally stymied uh, yes. so that they never become competitors for the world's resources and wealth.
0: There's terminology for it in my committee. Um, remember, I'm taking a, one of the intersections of my PhD studies um, intersects with global health, international health, if I'm to use a term that I'm more aligned with, critical um, international health, uh, that describes all of this, what you're talking about, those structural adjustment programs, those intentional designs, land grab, to make some nation, some land and by consequence, the people within those those in those geographic places um, dependent on others, and then it keeps shifting and morphing, and you know, from imperialism to liberalism, uh, neoliberalism, and now whatever this new emerging thing is. So, thanks for
1: for, for for liberalism. We might be able to call it. Say that again. Technoliberalism.
0: Yeah, the technocratic I that term in that
1: mm-hmm. second. You're mm-hmm. trying to figure out what to call it. Yeah, and there's is the, 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 the technocracy of technology.
0: The technocracy
1: as, a, as yeah. a logical way to organize an economy. Yes, really look at that.
0: A global technocracy developing. I just I'm I'm working on. Um, the ideas for the areas of my comprehensive exams and I'm learning about industrial complexes like we know about the prison industrial complex etc right. and and the what that term if you think about industrial complex as an ana- as an analytical frame to really explain really complex things and so what I'm wondering is what is the reproductive oppression industrial complex how do we coin that and analyze all of the layers of it and where it's tentacles and where it reaches, right? But anyway, where technocracy is a big part of that and these bodies, these, you know, Petri dishes I've done in, in, in some of my residency work, these questions that come up in my mind with stem cell, you know, as a midwife, I used to help collect cord blood. And then I would be like, well, where are they banking this? And what happens if someone stops paying for this, you know, after five years because they- don't have any more money to pay the annual fee and they forgot. And what the company promised, okay, fine. Let's say they kept paying it for 20 years and this child has leukemia or whatever they say that the stem cell future research is supposed to help for. How do you know that that's my baby's stems that you're giving me back 20 years later? Like well, ethics, you know, I just so many questions. Um, and that was 20 years ago, you know, in the DNA and the cordoba banking and, and now what can the future be and the splicing we went from in vitro to embryo to what would be these out of, out of body wounds that might be in the future?
1: Well, I certainly remember the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks with the Hela. Yes. yes. It's, it's certainly yes. an instructive warning for the future. That if they can patent our human DNA and then own our human DNA, then we lose that fundamental human right to ownership of our own body.
0: And what does that mean for the future?
1: Exactly. Because There's everything is being monetized. Absolutely. Everything is being commodified and monetized. And so here we are looking at Cox in a digital commodity market instead of human being.
0: There's a book on my shelf called Outsourcing the Womb that talks about just that and global surrogates and that market. You know, we know about it with adoptions. And what does that mean? The selling of organs and bodies and people to this other end. Just to the audience, we're going to link to all of these books and resources and things in the show notes if you want to dig a little bit deeper because and I recognize we're throwing a lot if this is not the world in which you swim. I want to pivot a little yeah, bit. I want to oh, yeah, you know,
1: is that this your show is called The Coochie Business. I just want to really rethink a lot of things that we think about coochies and vaginas or pussies or whatever words you want to use. Mm-hmm. And I have a friend of mine named Dr. Tony Bond, who's a religion and ethics scholar. And she tells a wonderful story about how God came to Mary, if you're a Christian, this is a story that's popular in Christianity, that God came to Mary and asked Mary if she would consent becoming the mother of Jesus and Mary of course did consent and so Jesus, God chose to introduce his son Jesus into the world through Mary's vagina and that means that God who of course is omnipotent and all powerful could have chosen to bring Jesus in through an apple through a great blade of sand through a rib, from a man, through anything, because God could have done all of those things. And the fact that he chose Mary's vagina Mm -hmm. and the passage by which to bring Jesus into the world, Tony Bond interprets as the sacredness of the coochie.
0: Absolutely.
1: And I love hearing and rehearing that story of reorienting Christianity to understand what God signified by first asking Mary's consent, and secondly using her vagina as a way to bring his son into the world. And I since religious interpretation is done by patriarchs or men, I think it's now more than time for people to understand the importance of the QG in mm-hmm. world affairs, and particularly if you believe those Christian texts that talk about the relationship between God and Mary.
0: Absolutely. You know, I really appreciate that you bring that up because I have a book and I've actually, I'm, 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 I'm hoping that this will be my next framing guest. Dr. Joseph Gibson wrote a book, When God Was a Black Woman and Why She Is Not Now. And I found out about that book when I was having a conversation. I was in San Diego and it was in 20, it was it 2014, I believe, maybe 16. It was right before I was leaving. Um, and I was, I was laying out. And on this year, there were a lot of moons, these full moons that were blood moons and harvest moons and really low and really red and really full. And there was also this s- solar eclipse that was happening. And on, on this particular day, there was a lunar eclipse and a solar eclipse, some things that were happening in the sky. And I remember during that day, I love the sun you know, I was born butt naked on the equator. I love the sunshine. I need it. So I was laying out in the sun, enjoying myself, and I was just really just grateful. I had immense gratitude for my melanin and how protective it was for me at that time. And then later on in the evening, it was the the moon thing, and I I love the moon and what she symbolizes. Um, And I was just floored and awed and being grateful for my womb. And I was like, wow, sun, black, moon, woman. I am cosmically, if you really just want to take symbolically, celestially phenomenal as a black woman. And we are. I bring that up because where I was when that epiphany came to me was um, a couple and they, um, And the the wife told me about uh, a book when God was a woman. And I I was like, what? We were having a conversation. And so I looked it up. I was like, I've always felt the the eradication of the divine feminine. What's the history of it? My father is a pastor. I grew up in the church, born in Nigeria. I was literally born in the church, (laughs) you know? And then as an immigrant to this country and just the things that you see and how the church was oppressing women. I remember very young. I was like I'm not getting married. I'm going to be like Mother Teresa then if if this is such an abomination to our cultural beliefs. You can't argue that I'm marrying Jesus now. <laughs> and they kind of backed down. And then I kept getting more degrees. And they they can't really you know, God first, your education second. Well, hey, I'm still am still doing that. <laughs> so So anyway, when I when I ordered that book And I was so eager to read about this history of this woman who, whatever her background, I still to this day have not read this book, actually. Because when I was looking for, even though I have it, I was looking for an advanced copy to read, one of those digital quick peek things. And I found this book titled When God Was a Black Woman and Why She Isn't Now. And the abstract for the person who wrote this book, a black man, was the fact that he read her book looked her up and really called her out. Now I'm going to ask you about calling out and calling it in. But really called her out about um, the omission of the race of this feminine deity that she was speaking of historically and the eradication of it across multiple types of religions and spirituality, a fact, right? And so she traces that, but then erases mm-hmm. the race of this divine feminine being that she, she outlines when all of her previous work was about how you cannot separate those two. And so then here she separates, she ignores, she omits it. And so his, his point was, well, lies of omission can be very dangerous. And he proceeds to write this book. It is phenomenal, and so I'm hoping that he will be the historical framing um, for this conversation to 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 really illustrate what you just what you just spoke about with with, with Dr. Bond. Um, and and I'm, I'm curious where a lot of those conversations and research will come um, in terms of the curiosity there. But thanks for bringing that that up too. I was going to ask. <laughs> I was going to ask you about um, pivot to to the the years that you've been in these streets doing this work and what you've observed regarding um, I guess the appropriation of terms like reproductive justice or intersectionality. If you can, you know, put this your answer to this question into the context of your upcoming book and your thoughts on call-out culture and speak to the positives and the negatives of sharing versus ownership acknowledgement like how should people think about these terms and how to use it especially for the purposes of liberation
1: well it's a common practice within black feminist theory and praxis that we offer our geniuses to the common, to the intellectual commons, generously and purposefully. And so it always amuses me when people try to steal something that's freely given because it speaks more to their character Mm. than the gift that they're trying to steal. Mm. And so I don't really spend a lot of time policing the boundaries of reproductive justice. And I imagine Kimberly Crenshaw, has lost total control of policing the boundaries of how people use intersectionality. I believe that we need to use the fact that people are complicated people and the people who we oppose are just as complex as the people who support us. And so that's what led me to my recent scholarship about how to turn the call-out culture into a culture that's calling in Based on radical love. I think we spend too much time criticizing each other. I think that there are times when calling out is totally appropriate, particularly when you're speaking to inaccessible power and someone abusing their power and their authority. But most of the time, we're just critiquing other people's political activities or their word choices or how they look or how they speak or why they don't know the latest in-group word. We're in kind of like a woke competition. who, Who can prove that they're the most woke within a setting? And calling in is really just a calling out done with love, with radical love, where you don't ignore the harm that people do, but you choose to hold them accountable for that harm through a lens of love instead of a lens informed by your trauma. Because the trauma doesn't allow you to seek healing and and reparation. It allows you only to seek punitive punishment and revenge in many ways. And I believe that we frustrate our own goals for achieving human rights in the world and making them the economic, social, cultural, and legal standards and moral standards that we should be using if we abuse people's human rights while trying to claim people's human rights. And so that's a built-in contradiction that I'm trying to teach us a new social justice practice called calling in to avoid. Because calling out, in its essence, it it replicates the prison industrial complex that we say that we oppose, but we tend to embrace its methods of punishment, exile, shaming, and condemnation, because we think that those are the, goals, the the tools we need to use to do good work. And I challenge that assumption, because if you act like an oppressor, then you are an oppressor. <laughs> it's just, there's no thing that well, I'm that the ends justify the means. And so I'm really critical of the call out culture and its abuse and the overstatement of harm that people think is necessary. So when someone uses a word that triggers you or does something that makes you feel uncomfortable and you overstate the harm that that's caused, then you lash out and become very reactionary and very punitive towards that person. And you really don't even want to take responsibility for the fact that you've chosen to blow up somebody's life without even ascertaining whether the harm was intentional, whether it's real, whether or not you had another choice rather than to blow up somebody's life. And so I'm really intrigued by how we can develop a new social justice practice that's based on seeing the humanity of everybody involved, and yet use it as a harm reduction strategy so that we can get more accountability. I think if people are so fearful that they'll be pounced upon by an angry social media mob if they release their unfolding thoughts to the world, that then what they do is go silent. They withhold their thinking from the shared pools of meaning that we need to have together so that we can figure stuff out collectively. And I think when you pounce on people's mistakes, then you actually decrease the likelihood that they will admit that they make mistakes. And so that leads to cover up and disguise as opposed to unearthing the mistakes so that you can actually achieve accountability. So, as I said, I'm really intrigued about whether or not we can use human rights based methods towards achieving accountability instead of the call out culture.
0: Yeah. I'm excited to see where that goes because I'm not really on social media, though I know I'm a millennial. I've never had any of these accounts. It's going to be real interesting how I put this out there in the world. And I know because this has been in the process for a number of years now, um, but how the, the social media part of it is going to be. But it's, it's hmm. um, I'm excited to follow this. And there's a lot of call-out culture out there. And it's it's popular, is my impression, um, and shifting it. And I'm curious because I've also heard you speak to um, being wary of the call out culture, and uh, as as a tool, like uh, analog uh, making an analogy to the 60s and COINTELPRO and what was going on, uh, you know, spook who sat by the door and, and these operations and seeing some of those similarities. Can you talk about why being mindful of call-out culture, especially for marginalized communities, um, might also be in our best interests?
1: Well, as an activist who developed my consciousness in the 60s and the 70s, we had to recognize that the FBI here in the United States ran a counterintelligence program called COINTELPRO, and its main goal was to infiltrate all the organizations and formations on the left, like the anti-Indian movement, the anti-war movement, the women's (laughs) rights, the black rights, and on and on. And so anyway, (laughs) we were being penetrated, like I said, in the anti-Indian, the anti-war, the women's rights movement, the... Of course, the Black Panther Party or any other black liberation movement, the gay rights movement, all of these were vulnerable to penetration by infiltrators from the FBI. And so whenever someone started engaging in the call-out culture within our organizations, sometimes it was legitimate political critique, but more often than not, It was someone trying to be very disruptive of us, using the tactics of trashing and gossip and calling out as a way to destroy our unity and make us distrust each other. So when you fast forward 40 or 50 years to people now indulging in the call-out culture, an old veteran like me starts suspecting, whether or not they're that politically inept or politically naive, or are they actually trying to implement another agenda, which is just to disrupt us and prevent us from amassing the power to actually change what's going on. And so I see a danger to the call-out culture that a lot of people don't want to admit.
0: Mm, wise words. So I'm curious to see how your book lands and how people pay attention to it and um how people respond to it even as we discuss it uh, within the context of reproductive justice um and getting us free speaking of getting us free what does it mean and why is it important to center the most marginalized voices in doing that what does it mean to make the invisible visible and what does it mean when we say privilege invisibilizes?
1: Well, first of all, you can imagine oppression being like a pyramid. And you can change the top of a pyramid without having much Im- yeah, much impact. You just be straight at the top, but you haven't actually changed the structure of the pyramid. But when you look at the bottom of the pyramid and you shift the bottom, then the whole thing rocks. Then the whole thing shifts. And so when you center the most marginalized, the most exploited, and the most vulnerable people in the lens, then it's like rocking the entire pyramid, not just the elites at the top, but everything has to change. And in our black feminist theory, we understand that if you look at the people who stand at that intersection of race, class, gender, sexuality, gender identity, all of those things, we represent the entire pyramid shaking that when you attend to our human rights, you've actually attended to the human rights of everybody else on whom, who rests on our shoulders and our bodies and stuff. And so this is why we think our practice has to center the most marginalized Now, who is the most marginalized itself is a shifting lens concept, because, for example, you may agree that every child has a human right to an education, but a blind child might need her books in Braille. Mm -hmm. So in that configuration, it's the blind child that needs to be centered in the lens so that she can enjoy the same human right to an education that a sighted child might enjoy. If I were indigenous or Native American and was centered in the land, then dealing with sovereignty and treaty rights and the settler colonial aspects of the United States may be the most important topics to address because they, of course, suffered genocide and depopulation on their own land. And they weren't even, Native Americans weren't even afforded full voting rights until 1957. A lot of people don't realize that. And so it's a shifting lens concept, but again, who's most vulnerable can determine where you need to locate the work that will have the most impact.
0: Yes, thank you for that. You mentioned earlier when we were framing reproductive justice and framing and explaining the human rights framework, what reproductive oppression looks like and how it shows up. but sometimes it's still far removed from folks. Um, can you give or, well, so let me explain. Sometimes I'll, uh, I've shared that there are incarcerated coochie owners that are pregnant, that are shackled, or like you mentioned, that I. giving birth, right. While giving birth. And people like, they're nah.
1: going to get up and run out of the hospital in the middle of their labor pains, but yeah.
0: I mean, right? And people were like, what? No. So can you give some examples, some unsuspecting examples that you've seen, you've heard of, that you know we can link to in the notes? Like, no, 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 no. This happens and yeah, happens. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, there was a big expose by Justice Now out in California where prison authorities were sterilizing women, In a very coercive way, you can't say that they did it without their permission because they made a devil's bargain with them. They basically told these incarcerated women that we will prohibit your existing children from visiting you if you don't agree to be sterilized and not have any more kids. And so technically they had their consent, but realistically they were using the coercion of the prison industrial complex as a way to achieve their own specific goals of reproductive management of people who are incarcerated, which of course met met their other needs because there were no pregnancies to result from the the sexual abuse by male prison guards of Mm. these women who Mm. were incarcerated Mm. because of of an inconvenient pregnancy. Mm. And so we see so much evidence, whether it's pushing dangerous contraceptives, on to people when it's limited to only one option where other safer and more woman-controlled options are not distributed as eagerly. It's about not paying attention to the chemicals that's in our food, whether or not we have to go to work around chemicals that could then have an Im- impact on both sperm and eggs. I mean, there's just so many ways that our reproductive processes are interfered with in such a normalized way, we don't even think of them as reproductive oppression. But like in South Africa, we had to work on a case of women who had to agree to be sterilized with either a permanent or or a temporary sterilization measure in order to get a job because they were in and employment sector around da- dangerous chemicals, and the employer didn't want any consequences, legal or financial, to these women getting pregnant or having pregnancies while they were working with these dangerous chemicals. So there was never a question of removing these dangerous chemicals from the workplace or providing protective gear for the women in the workplace, but just to sterilize you, So we don't have any legal liabilities in the future. And so we have all of these reproductive oppressive policies embedded into our routine operations. And we as black feminists have to point out how these are reproductive oppressive policies and not just business as usual.
0: Hmm. Quickly, what's a Mississippi
1: appendectomy? Well, this is a term that Fannie Lou Hamer and others in Mississippi talked about because it became so common when black women went to a healthcare provider for something happening with her tonsils or a toenail infection or whatever they had to leave the hospital with, an, with a hysterectomy. And so they colloquially started calling it the Mississippi appendectomy that you had appendicitis and you came out sterilized. Or that you have to have an ingrown toenail removed and you came out sterilized. Or that you had an ear infection and you came out sterilized. It was such a routine practice of illegally and immorally sterilizing black women that people like Fannie Lou Hamer, who was a noted civil rights activist, started calling it, not so jokingly, a Mississippi appendectomy.
0: Tell us about the history of Sister Song and Brother Beat. Mm. Well, Sister Song
1: was a collective of women of color organizations, 16 of us, for Black, for Native American, for Asian Pacific Islander, and for uh, Latina, that came together in 1997 because we felt that we could be stronger and push for better public policies, better, better health care services, And so we were called Sister Song, Women of Color Reproductive Health Collective. And the name Sister Song was chosen because in our planning meetings, we were sitting around complaining about the same things, the lack of money, the lack of staff, the lack of support, the lack of respect. Because when you work on coochie issues in our communities of color, you're kind of like outraging the people who can be, you know, tied to respectability politics, and we worked on everything from teen pregnancy to STDs to HIV AIDS to abortion. All of these issues were those that made our communities of color nervous, and yet we weren't quite embraced by the pro-choice majority white women's movement because we insisted on having a sturdy analysis around white supremacy and neoliberalism, within our politics. But the founders of Sister Song, the 16 of us, were both pro-choice and pro-life. So that was never a debate or an issue with us because we represented a continuum of how women of color think on these issues. And the name Sister Song, like I said, came from us complaining about all our different challenges. And one of our members, Juanita Williams, he said, you know, we're all saying the same thing, and if we learned to sing our individual songs in harmony together, we would be so powerful. Mm-hmm. And so Sister Song became both a name and a metaphor for mm-hmm. women of color working together, singing our individual songs in harmony together so that we can achieve power to change the reproductive oppression that takes place in our communities. And so We decided to use the Reproductive Justice Framework as our organizing framework, and it became very popular. And a few years after our founding, we had our first national conference in 2003 where we launched the Reproductive Justice Framework, and it became so popular that we not only were other women of color brought to our first conference, which ended up with about 600 people at it, but the left wing of the white women's movement, the more radical wing of the white women's movement that had a critique of white supremacy and neoliberal capitalism also came to our conference. And that's when we opened up our ranks to admit white women, men, middle, uh, North African, Middle Eastern women, all kinds of people, everyone who cared about the human right to reproduction and all of its reproductive politics became members of Sister Song and then four years later we sponsored our first conference based on the on the premise that if you can't talk about sex then you can't talk about the consequences of sexual activity. And so in two thousand and seven we sponsored our first Let's Talk About Sex Baby conference. Okay. And that has become one of our signature events because we create those pro sex pro-sexuality spaces within the reproductive politics movement where people can talk, frankly, about embracing sex as a human right and as a and sexual pleasure as a human right. And so we try to maintain that leading radical edge and also Sister Song makes sure that reproductive politics are discussed in other movements like we formed a partnership with the Black Lives Matter movement because although the Black Lives Matter movement was founded and led by black women, they were more personal feminists than political feminists. And so they had not put reproductive justice into their plan of action and had not recognized that when the police or a white vigilante kills a black child, that that's reproductive oppression that that mother and father experienced. And so we move into the domestic violence, the anti-rape movement, the economic justice, the environmental justice, all with this very intersectional, interconnected reproductive justice analysis, where we show them that everything can be tied to whether or not populations are nurtured so that they can flourish or they are assaulted and depressed so that they either get treated as subhuman or they are made to reproductively disappear like the necropolitics analysis. And so now Sister Song is, however you can subtract 1997 from now, they're, 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 they're that many years old But I can't, I have bad math right now. And I'm really pleased to how we grew from that set, those first 16 organizations to over 80. But then we recognized that the majority of women of color weren't in women of color organizations. So in 2003, when we opened up our ranks to white women and white men and black men and and other people, and uh, that we needed to provide a way for individuals to belong to Sister Song. So we're like a moderated federation. We're a federation Mm -hmm. of, of 80 organizations, but we also have individual membership. And then once we admitted men to our ranks, then the men wanted to have their own space to start talking about how reproductive justice affected them. And so Sister Song gave rise to Brother Beat, which, of course, is just the name they chose. I, when I think of Brother Beat, something more gutter, gutterish comes to my mind. But this is the name they chose. And then in 2007... We started QPOC, which is queer people of color organizing uh, within Sister Song. And so we try to live our intersectionality in, in a very palpable way by providing our black feminist theory to everyone for them to use as they need to. And then we build that movement so that we can amass our power to affect change. And Sister Song not only works at the policy front, because we've been able to stop a lot of anti-abortion legislation, but we also have found Black Mamas uh, Matter Alliance and other things, where we're actually going from the cradle to the grave and talking about people's human rights and fighting to protect them.
0: But I also have some follow-up questions, like, where these 12 black women now and things like that, that people might be interested in. What direction do you want to go for these last five minutes? I
1: like that last one where the 12 black women are now.
0: All right, let's go there. Because I think books should be written by all, (laughs) about all of them. Yes. And that's why I was asking, I I, go, please tell me your thoughts. I think there's a lot of information. Since
1: 1994, these women have gone on to do really amazing things. There's a the new bill is now, if I believe I have this correctly, ran for political office, and she's on the Richmond City Council. I believe Abel Mabel Thomas, of course, ran for uh Congress here in Georgia. she's still with heavily involved in politics and the Georgia legislature uh, There were women who were involved in the religious coalition for reproductive choice, so they're still working at the intersection of religion and reproductive justice. Tony Bond, who I mentioned earlier, went back to school and got her GED and then her bachelor's and her master's and last year she got her PhD in in religion and ethics. And I'm really proud of her. Uh, Another woman, uh, Elizabeth, whose last name I can't think of, went on to become a lawyer working at the intersection of law and reproductive justice. So they've all had very interesting careers and impacts since that 1994 meeting. And I think some enterprising scholar needs to do a book about us, about the 12 of us, or individually about what other people have done since that historic meeting in '94.
0: It's that conversation with some colleagues in the RJ movement now, that question, right? That statement that you made that made me ask, and I've I've actually, I did not do this scholarship, but just recognizing their names and speaking of it. I guess, similarly, what are your thoughts about um, the generations and the evolution of the reproductive justice movement since what the 12 of you created?
1: Well, the thing that has most surprised me since the origination of the reproductive justice framework is how it's traveled transnationally. Mm -hmm. And so that I was laying in bed one day, just idly listening to NPR. And the Minister of Health of South Africa appeared on the news feed because she was testifying at the United Nations. And she said that she was going to rearrange the entire Ministry of Health according to reproductive justice principles. And I jerked up out of bed because I was like, what? We haven't set up an organizing project in South Africa to carry this framework? How did it travel so fast? And then as we started looking for the data, we found that people in Ireland had used reproductive justice to repeal the abortion law there. Women in in the Caribbean and Latin uh, America, Central and South America were using reproductive justice. Women in the former Eastern Bloc countries were using reproductive justice. So it turned out to be a universal framework that created political space to knit together a lot of disparate issues that people wanted to advocate for in their locales. And they really borrowed it and attributed to the black feminist theory that we had created. And so that's probably the most surprising aspect of reproductive justice, that it became a way for people to make claim to their human rights in a way that the previous pro-choice, pro-life binary hadn't offered people before. And unfortunately, a lot of people think we created reproductive justice as a way to supplant the pro-choice, pro-life binary And that's simply not true. We created it because we centered black women in the lens of our analysis, and we created that theory that worked for us. But I find that when white women use reproductive justice, they center problematizing the pro-choice, pro-life analysis, which is fine because that's what they need to do. But again, that's about its adaptability, its flexibility, its ambiguity, which I think are positive characteristics and not deficits. And so the way people use reproductive justice and the way that it has traveled from the margins to the center of reproductive politics continues to surprise and amaze me.
0: And it will continue to spread because um, it is liberatory in its formation. It was about justice and it will continue. Um, Thank you. We are right at our time, 1230. Before I let you go, any events, activities currently going out, this podcast will air in two days on Tuesday. um, And I can add these things in the notes. Where can people find you?
1: The best way to find me is through my website, www.lorettaRoss.com. And of course, my email is L-O-R-O-S-S-T-A-L-L-C at gmail.com. I presently am teaching an online course on white supremacy in the age of Trump, and you can contact me through either my website or that email address to enroll for that class. I have a rolling ongoing registration for it. It's only $5 a class, and I make it so financially accessible because I don't want the cost of the class to be a barrier to people, and I'm constantly exploring how in the times of COVID, that I can make my intellectual offerings available virtually since we're all on lockdown, but that's no reason to stop the learning and the sharing. So that's what I do.
0: We are grateful here on Coochie Business to have your generosity in sharing your intellectual um, genius with us, your personality, your stories, and your time. Thank you so much, Loretta for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. With that said, thank you for joining us today for some Coochie business. Join us next week for another Coochie conversation you will not want to miss. Does something on today's show make you go, what? Well, let's talk about it. We want to discuss your Coochie questions and share your Coochie stories. And you can submit them to us at questions at com or stories at CoochieBusiness.com. And Coochie is spelled C-O-O-C-H-I-E. And we just might read them on air. Now you can help the Coochie Business Podcast grow by making it easier for new listeners to find our show. And you can do this by making sure you're subscribed on your podcast platform of choice. And by rating the show and leaving a comment with a review. I'm not afraid of